Welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. Featuring sysadmin expert, Don Pizzette. Security specialist, Daniel Lowry. And Peter. Hello and welcome to Technado with Don Pizzette. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam. I'm joined, as always, by Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing today? I am doing great. You know, it's a uh, another sunshiny week here in Florida and a lot of interesting stuff going on in tech. A lot of products getting canceled for some strange reason. <laughs> so uh, it is exciting to get in and talk about some of that. Sounds good. And we have Daniel today. Daniel, how are you doing? I am doing well, good sir. Thank you for your concern. And, and I'm off. Uh, I'm in uh, Las Vegas at a conference but I left Daniel in charge of the <laughs> iPad. Yeah, explain the, this is my lovely hotel room. Yeah. Uh, but I left Daniel in charge of, of the iPad with the with the sound. So that, Daniel, you wanna you wanna bless us with one to make sure that Let's that, that works? Uh, what shall we go with? Page two. Yowza. There we Perfect. go. There you go. <laughs> that works great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, we are also joined by our special guest today, John Gleason, who is the COO of Storage. Uh, how you doing, John? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the uh, episode here. Really excited to talk to you guys. Yeah, we are glad to have you and uh, excited to learn more about you. I feel like we, uh, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, cloud and security the last couple of weeks, so uh, it's really good timing to have you on here. But uh, let's go ahead and get to know you a little bit better and jump in with our first segment, which is rapid fire questions. Who do you work for? What's new? Who are you? What's happening? What's wrong with you? All right, John. In this segment, what we do is we rapidly fire questions at you. You'll see a little timer appear on the right side of your screen. You'll have approximately one minute to answer each question. If you take too long, then Daniel will buzz you. That is an interesting now Daniel doesn't idea. even know where the buzzer is. No clue. So I'm just going <laughs> to... Oh, there it is. There we go. <laughs> and honestly, that was as good a job as Peter normally it's does. True. So uh, <laughs> you, you're right in there. Uh, and then we'll move on to the next question. So that's how we're going to do it. We're going to rotate through each of us. The first question is coming at you from Peter. So, John, I'm curious, uh, we're, we've been asking people this month how they got started in IT. And I was looking down your LinkedIn and I was like, well, this was a different journey to IT. It seems like you kind of started in the law field. So how did you how did you get into IT? What, what decided uh, what made you decide to make that switch? Yeah, so uh, I was very much into tech as a kid. Uh, but growing up, I didn't have any exposure to people who actually worked as jobs in tech. And that's mostly because at that point in time, there, that wasn't a thing. Um, the internet was just kind of hitting web 1.0. And so uh, I just followed my father's footsteps and went into law. Um, while I was going to school, though, I worked for a gourmet food company. And that company decided they were going to um, implement a new uh, POS system. So they bought the shiniest and coolest thing and nobody in the company knew anything about computers. And so when it came to uh, implement that, I didn't so much volunteer as I made eye contact at the wrong moment when they asked who wanted to take on the project. So I kind of got stuck with it, um, but I loved it. And lurking as a lawyer, I learned two things. One, I really liked working on tech. And two, I kind of didn't like working at the law. Um, but I did find that law lawyers needed uh, tech support. So I kind of was a pioneer in the gig economy. And I started my own little thing doing tech support for law firms. And basically, I did a lot of things, you know, just a scrappy kid, updating networks, cleaning out viruses, dealing with uh, sort of high-risk content access from unprotected network. Um, and, you know, it's sort of technado reminds me uh, of some of the things I used to see on some people's screens that I would discreetly clean up. Um, but 
what I found out was that, you know, Hey, a lot of these things that I had to fix, people would pay a lot of money to have them fixed discreetly and, uh, to keep business open. And some of those things, interestingly enough, are the types of things that would have been easily avoided, um, by sort of the, the zero trust frameworks we're seeing today. So I worked at a couple sure. of startups, um, some more mature software companies and ultimately ended up at storage. Now, I've actually been following storage for a couple of years now. I, actually, I think about four years now, as I, I heard early on that, you know, here's this blockchain storage company that allows distributed storage across the Internet using uh, various technologies to be able to, to replicate information. I, I had at the time like a, I don't know, a 16 terabyte array that was sitting there. So I threw that onto the storage network just to kind of try it out and, and learn about it. But I know the company has changed a lot over the last few years, a couple of pivots as technologies advanced. So can you give me an overview of, of what where the company's at right now? Like what is the the big vision that you guys have? Yeah. So, um, so we take a different approach to cloud object storage. So instead of like building data centers and racking a bunch of servers and stopping them full of hard drives, we make open source software that anybody can run who has excess hard drive capacity and they can share that with the network. And then the network aggregates all of that capacity and makes it available as a uh, S3 compatible object storage layer for developers. So think of it as like uh, Airbnb for uh, disk drives, but the, the audience is more S3 than Dropbox. So more developer focused. Um, and the idea is that when you upload a, a piece of data, um, that file gets encrypted, then it gets broken up into at least 80 pieces. And those 80 pieces are distributed across hard drives all over the world. There's 13,000 uh, storage nodes connected to the network in about 100 countries today. There's no single point of failure. There's no concentrated centralized location to access data. And that means bit rot and ransomware and downtime are, are really, really un unlikely. Uh, and so, you know, if a node goes offline for any reasons, it's okay, we can recover that data. Uh, and ultimately we've created some pretty cool tools for, uh, for privacy. Um, so we're definitely, um, you know, sort of in a, in a mode right now where, where we're looking for uh, kind of high growth, um, but we're able to make this whole distributed system work, which is pretty interesting uh, with a 99.95% availability SLA and 11 nines of durability. Um, so it, it's really a, a fast and performance system that kind of gets away from what you might expect with uh, um, blockchain systems today. That's ah, really cool. I'm, I'm kind of a proponent myself of the whole idea of privacy and um, things of that nature to where, especially with these um, decentralized systems and protocols that are coming up with, thinking of things like inter interplanetary file system or the library protocol. I'm wondering, is this like that? It sounds like it is and not just a regular multi-cloud environment. Is that what we're looking at? Yeah. So if you, if you think about it, um, like, uh, you know, as, as sort of a alternative to multi-cloud, uh, multi-cloud typically sort of invokes ideas of replicating your data in, in one, from one data center to another versus breaking it up and distributing it over lots of places. And with that distributed model, you can get a lot higher durability and a lot better performance uh, at a much lower cost. And so with, um, with sort of the, the decentralized model, the idea is that um, there are a couple of advantages, right? So you have this advantage of security where um, because there isn't like a single centralized location of getting your data, it's, it's a lot more available. It's private because it's end-to-end -end encrypted. Um, and it ultimately reduces that total cost of ownership. And so when you look at kind of IPFS on the one end, um, taking a decentralized approach to um, uh, content addressing and uh, library and some things like Arweave on the other end that are really looking at long-term, um, you know, durable storage. We're sort of in that middle spot of 
we're developer-focused storage. We're sort of providing that same service as Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, but doing it in a different way that's disruptive um, and, and really innovative by comparison. Definitely. So I, I did want to ask one more question. Um, I know we're kind of out of time for the segment, but I'm very curious. So you live down in paradise now, uh, down in, in, in the Cayman Islands. I'm not sure if I'm giving away like your secret layer uh, <laughs> location or anything, but uh, I, looking down your your history, it was all Detroit, 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 and then now Grand Cayman. So is there anything about Detroit that you miss? Well, I'll tell you what, Cayman has been awesome during the pandemic uh, because there hasn't been a community transmission of COVID in over a year. So it's it's a really safe place to be. But um, achieving that level of safety has meant the borders have been closed. So I miss uh, Amazon deliveries. That's not a thing here. Um, I, I miss seeing family and friends uh, and craft beers are a little hard to come by. But I will tell you, I do not miss shoveling snow even a little bit. I thought you were going to say you miss throwing octopi on the ice at the uh, Detroit Red Wing games. Yeah, ice is not a thing here either. <laughs> yeah, ice. They've read stories about it, but they've never seen it. You have to shovel sand occasionally. Yes. Exactly. You, just, yes. you put on like a beanie and you get out and in the, the beach and just shovel. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just a beanie. Like home. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you while, while you're here, uh, we have the the next segment uh, that is what grinds my gears. So we want to find out what angers you. So, Daniel. You know what really grinds my gears? This Lindsay Lohan. You know what really grinds my gears? You, America. We now go to Peter for You Know What Really Grinds My Gears. All right, perfect. Uh, so for what grinds your gears, it sounds like it's when people misuse uh, the term zero trust. And I think this is something we've actually talked about before that it's kind of like 5G or these other nebulous terms that don't have like an exact definition. Well, what does 5G mean to you? What does it mean to you? Zero trust, kind of the same way. So first of all, what are the ways that you find people using it incorrectly? You know, so I find uh, people treat zero trust like it's a product, uh, like it's a thing you can just go buy and install and poof, you're zero trust and it's awesome. Um, and I also find that, uh, that people apply zero trust in context where where it kind of doesn't apply. Uh, and then they apply it in places where it, it actually really should apply. Um, and if you think of it as, as sort of a strategic um, cybersecurity model, right? It's a position designed to protect technology and sort of say, okay, only people who can access uh, certain things should have access to those things. And there's sort of this, this tried and true model. Um, in the decentralized space, people throw that term around. Um, like just because it's decentralized, you sort of automatically get uh, zero trust. Um, and what we find is that, you know, this, this sort of the traditional approach of, of sort of a moat and a castle where the, uh, you've got a perimeter and you sort of have the network set up in such a way that you're, you're keeping out uh, resources. And once you get across the moat, hey, you're in the castle. And with decentralized uh, networks, um, sort of you don't really have a moat and you don't really have a castle. You have this distributed network. Um, and it's really an interesting uh, difference for us because... When there's no moat and there's no castle and there's sort of, you know, the, the, what you have is sort of the, the knight in the old castle model was the network engineer. And now it's really just a, a data scientist looking at a, a distributed set of resources. And for us, um, you know, some of, the, some of the interesting benefits are that with our architecture, um, the biggest difference for us is that we don't have a network necessarily protect from users. We have a service to protect from the network. 
So we're actually uh, this crowdsourced network of infrastructure where we don't own control or even have access to most of the network uh, and most of the resources. And that puts us in an interesting possession uh, from zero trust because we have to not only have zero trust with the underlying infrastructure, but also for the users who are trying to access it. And because of the different things that we've had to do um, in a decentralized space, what we found is that, that zero trust and zero knowledge actually deliver benefits to users building on that architecture to have more uh, secure and more private applications at the end of the day. You know, I, I have noticed a couple of the different networks that are out there that try and do zero trust or establish a secure network. Well, I'll use Tor as an example, right? The Tor, the, the Onion Router is supposed to be this isolated private network where once you're on it, people can't track you. But they've had challenges with exit nodes in countries that were a little loosey-goosey on the whole privacy issue, right? So if there's an exit node in Russia, the odds are the Russian government is able to monitor that traffic and trace a lot of it back. So with with your product and how you you really don't know all the different nodes, the nodes are all over the globe. Have you run into any challenges with that, like endpoints in certain countries? Yeah, so there are always uh, challenges with endpoints in certain countries, right? Because you you know, as as a as a business providing a service to other businesses, we have to be aware of certain things, like for example, OFAC, right? And so there are certain countries in which we cannot allow nodes to operate. We can't pay them. We can't store data on them. Um, we just have to avoid those. And so we have put in place certain controls to sort of take that distributed network and make sure that that we're not putting either ourselves or our customers' data at risk. Um, but the great thing is that even even with uh, with the network the way it is, right? We have to assume that that a certain number of of the operators are potentially hostile, right? To potentially trying to access data or or do something else bad to the network. And so, we have to secure all of the data with with things like strong cryptography and um, distributing the data once it's encrypted over uh, distributed endpoints that are uncorrelated, so that um, so that basically that data is never at risk. And yeah, you're absolutely right. We, with a lot of decentralized systems, if the data is unencrypted, you're 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 rolling the dice in, in a really bad way. Um, but with our network and the model, the way we've done it, it's actually um, it, there's almost uh, you know you could say it's it's practically impossible for someone to find the uh, 80 nodes out of 13,000 that are storing a piece of data, then compromise 29 of those nodes, then get an individual piece of a file, somehow be able to reconstitute it. And then once it's reconstituted, decrypt it without an encryption key. Um, and then they'd have to start over with the very next file because it's not like there's a, uh, uh, a central repository where all the data is. And once they've hacked it, they've got it. Um, it's a really, uh, really secure model for that approach. Well, I know that you guys sounds are... like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Don. I thought it was interesting how you know you said that zero trust is not a product. Uh, and you know, I, I kind of was thinking back to some of our past interviews where we've interviewed companies that zero trust was their they, product. Yeah, they use that model. <laughs> and so so I think most people do acknowledge that it is important. It is kind of the way of the future. We're seeing that with a lot of web applications now. So it's moving in the right direction. And and you guys seem to be at the the forefront of that. I know. There have been a number of reports that I've seen on on the progress of various blockchain projects, and a lot of them haven't gone anywhere. But you guys are consistently listed as one of the one of the organizations that's actually truly released a product, something you can use today. So I think that's pretty neat. And uh, you know, zero trust, protecting data—that's something that's on all of our radar. It's it's very appealing to me, especially the idea of using decentralization on top of a you know, which makes for a zero trust model. It's it's just like that's the future, right? That's how we should be doing things. And that's how we should be gauging. It's cool to see that you guys are at the kind of the tip of that spear moving that forward. 
I, I don't know what you guys are talking about because I, I got a, a zero trust at Best Buy the other day. <laughs> um, so, okay. Buy one, get one free. Yeah. Yeah, it works great. It's a great. fantastic zero trust. So, so, John, I wanted to ask you real quick. I know you guys have a couple of uh, webinars coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So, we have a, um, a webinar coming up in uh, uh, the later this month on the 25th. Um, our CTO, JT, and I are going to talk a little bit about how we deliver enterprise-grade SLAs and how we uh, deliver service you can trust. Um, and then we've got a, another one coming up in uh, uh, September where we're going to talk a lot about uh, privacy. So our uh, chief legal officer, Catherine Johnson, and I are going to talk about privacy. And then in October, we've got uh, some customer showcases talking about uh, performance. So a lot of interesting things coming up on the, uh, the webinar circuit with storage. Sounds good. And people can also try out uh, your storage uh, DCS solution for free. Where do they go to to check that out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, users can uh, go to uh, storage.io um, and uh, sign up for free. They can get a uh, 150 um, uh, gigs for free uh, per month. And uh, also, I think we're offering a uh, uh, an extra uh, coupon code for uh, listeners of this service. Yeah, I saw that. If you if you enter promo code Technado, uh, they say they will increase your free tier by giving you a hundred dollar credit over six months, which is hmm. awesome. And I should clarify um, for those that are just listening and not uh, not viewing that storage s t o r j dot io. Uh, so head over there and you can check that out. And I appreciate you offering that coupon code for our listeners. Yeah. That, uh, I'm some I'm sure they will appreciate. Absolutely, thank you. 200 or right, well, uh, 150 well, free gigs of storage. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Yeah. So, it's, they, uh, will... you know, it... go ahead. Oh, it's good. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's actually the, uh, I think it's the most generous free tier of any storage product out there. You can get pretty far with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, we're really excited. We want people to try it. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and telling us all about uh, distributed cloud and, and all that great stuff. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, joining the show. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the news right after this on TechNado with Don Pizzette. This is Josh. Josh spent $2,500 on a week of classroom training for CompTIA A+, and got certified. Josh got a good job that pays $40,000 per year. This is Jeremy. Jeremy only spent $299 on a full year of training from IT Pro TV, including A and 300 other courses. Jeremy also got a great job that pays $40,000 per year. Jeremy used the more than $2,200 he saved on IT training for a fabulous tropical vacation. Now, Jeremy is still using his IT Pro TV membership to study for Network Plus and Security Plus to advance his career, but not spending any more money. Since all three are on included in his IT Pro TV membership plus 300 more courses. Don't be like Josh. Choose IT Pro TV for your IT training. All right, welcome back to Technado with Don Pizzette. Thank you so much to John Gleason for joining us. That was very educational to see, as Don said, a way the blockchain is actually Working. Doing something. Yeah. <laughs> Doing something. Don loves you know. blockchain. Doing something other than generating like media AdWords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Blockchain and zero trust, both both big buzzwords there. But is there we do AI have all involved or maybe some ML? Like AI, I'm sure. Yeah, this I wish we were still playing buzzword bingo. Yeah. 
because that would have that would have hit a few. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a, a look at our articles for this week. The first one is from ArsTechnica.com. New WireGuard NT shatters throughput ceilings on windows, and it's not pronounced WireGardent as uh, <laughs> as one of our producers Garden. thought, which I I kind of like better. Yeah. Uh, but uh, start a Don, can you bring us up to speed on this one? Sure. So if you're not familiar with WireGuard, it is a relatively new VPN protocol that, uh, or really a VPN client. It leverages other protocols uh, that you can use to, well, build up a VPN. It's open source and it's designed to replace OpenVPN. OpenVPN has been around a long time, is very well tested, but as most people can tell you, it has a lot of overhead. It's not the fastest of protocols. So WireGuard was designed to be a more modern version of a VPN client written in modern languages that is designed to run very, very fast. Well, since it's new, it's still evolving quite a bit and a lot of security professionals aren't ready to trust it yet. So we don't see it widely deployed in businesses just yet, but we will in the future. They have released a version for Windows and that's you know raised some eyebrows because Windows has its own VPN technologies and it does IPsec and whatever if you want to do that. However, they are testing a new tunnel client inside of WireGuard on Windows that is significantly faster. And so it has, what they're saying is it's blown open the performance uh, that using the previous driver for WireGuard, uh, they were able to get about 414 megabits, megabits per second uh, over a VPN tunnel just by switching to their new tunnel driver, they were able to get 737 megabits, almost doubling the performance of it just by changing that driver. Not a hardware change, not a bandwidth change, just simply the way that it's handling its encryption. Now, on a positive side, faster is usually better, but the skeptical security researcher is going to look at that and say, what corners did you cut to speed that up and has security been affected? So this is in beta. You can opt in to try it if you want by changing a registry key. But if it holds water, then by this time next year, this should be a great new software VPN client to use. And this is just something that's going to be baked into Windows at this point, or at least in the future. Is that the idea? Or uh, no, I didn't I, quite so get what they were saying about that. It's an open source product. Okay. So for the time being, it's going to be something you download and install. Like you can install OpenVPN on Windows. Windows yeah. ships with some closed source VPN technologies, but you can do open if you want. Uh if it gets widely accepted, then Microsoft's pattern is to then incorporate it into the OS. But we'll have to wait and see what happens. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Seems interesting. I mean, 700 some odd, you know, megabits a second is throughput by Grapthar's hammer. You know, that's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, what a savings. So, <laughs> have, have you, uh, you do a lot of security stuff, but I don't think you really do like VPN testing, right? Have you messed with no, WireGuard no, at all? I mean, I haven't messed with WireGuard. I use OpenVPN quite a bit for mm-hmm. connecting to different cyber ranges and things of that nature, uh, which is my preferred method. I really hate HTML5 based stuff. Yeah, it's just clunky and slow and clunky, super clunky. So I love being able to to VPN in. If we got something that's even faster and hopefully secure, you know, know, hopefully the corners they cut or maybe they didn't, they just got smarter and did something better. And uh, it's still a very robust solution, man. Getting that kind of throughput where you're being somewhat secured as well as getting that speed, I'm I'm interested. I'm down. Yeah. Well, you know, when it comes to security th- technologies like this, I never want to jump on the the yeah. latest and greatest. You want to give it time to make sure it's tested. Uh, but it looks really promising, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Can't wait till they find those WireGuard zero days. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. Don, do we have a good idea of how they achieve this exactly? I mean, is this something witchcraft? That, that, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, a lot of it has to do with how Windows handles drivers that Microsoft wants as much as possible to run in the user space these days. And so when you have a driver that runs in user space that then talks to the kernel, the, the calls have to be sent to user space, translated to the kernel, then translated back to user space and to you. So that translation takes time. Well, what they've done is pushed more and more of it into uh, leveraging, uh, in Linux, we call them kernel modules. I forget what they're called in Windows, but where they're able to do it without making that switch. Hmm. And so by doing that, that's what's optimizing the performance. And so, like I said, if that's the case, there shouldn't be any security concerns around that change. Although having more and more stuff happen in kernel space means that if there is a zero day, it's going to be at elevated <laughs> yeah, access. So going to be at yeah, that ring zero, baby. It's sensitive stuff. <laughs> yep. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's take a look at our next article now, which comes to us from bleepingcomputer.com. Windows admins now can block external devices via layered group policy. And, and Don, I'm curious, and my initial thought when looking at this was, does this have anything to do with kind of the, with work from home now, you know, there's all kinds of devices that are not the devices that maybe IT gave you that are accessing the network. Is that something to do with that? Yeah, I think that's a big driving factor in this and and just people's general adoption of laptops over desktops, right? Many companies only buy laptops these days. So if you have a device that travels, you don't know what's being plugged into it. Now, when I first saw this article, I almost dismissed it because in Windows group policy, you've been able to block external devices for a Years. long time. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the DOD pushed that. Yeah, it's yeah. been a long time uh, where you could disable CDs. So they couldn't put a CD in the CD driver or DVD. Uh, you could disable USB devices. You could completely shut off the USB ports. So that's actually not what's kind of the lead in technology here. The big thing is that it is a layered group policy. So this is something that's designed for you to have uh, multiple layers of differentiation. So for example, you could say, I'm going to block all USB thumb drives but I'm going to allow USB hard drives or specific vendors. Like I'll allow Samsung thumb drives, but not SanDisk thumb drives. And you can get really specific. And it basically creates a workflow that gives you really granular control of the devices you want to approve. And most of the systems I've worked with that let you approve USB devices are way super specific. So it's like this exact model of thumb drive. And then if the vendor changes that, like that model number or whatever in any way, now you got to go and reapprove that. But this works on families of the devices. And so you're able to just group things together. Uh, so if you are a network administrator that needs to restrict what removable devices can be added to a Windows machine, this is a, uh, a really beneficial thing for you. And it's going to be rolling out. Uh, it's already rolled out to some systems right now, but through the month of August and into September, we'll see it roll out uh, worldwide. Well, that's really cool, man. Like giving you that, that they say layered, but I would, yeah, I'd probably use the term granular control mm -hmm. over the different devices or families of devices. They're really thinking ahead on this one because like you say, things can change really quickly and being able to adapt to that and utilize like a one rule push that applies to a multitude of different devices. Super helpful. I am a little surprised that it's just coming out now. On, yeah, that does make sense. It, yeah. it seems like we needed this a long time ago, yeah. but here it is. But Billy was over there eating a bag of chips. Going, I'll get to it, <laughs> boss. It'll happen. Don't worry. I have to go filter <laughs> my urine in Africa. I don't have time to worry about these USB <laughs> <That's> ports. <right. laughs> this could be another thing that like the, the pandemic is kind of pushing 
you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, See, Billy now doesn't have anything time. to do. So he's like, well, I guess I'll get that whole layered group he's policy like, thing going on. I, I can't believe everybody fell for that microchip in their system trick. Uh, so now what am I going to do? Morons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so an unofficial tinfoil hat segment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't All know right, what that sounds is on good. the thing here. Oh, yeah, it's on that iPad somewhere. The landing was fake. Paul McCartney's been dead since 1966. <laughs> Dogs can't see color. 5G causes syphilis. Do you understand that? Thank you, Bill Gates. Yes, we appreciate you. Oh, true. <laughs> um, well, we don't know if it was Bill or Melinda. We'll find out now after this voice. It was Belinda. Who was the mastermind <laughs> behind that duo? Yeah. Is that if what we call them? The, the power couple, Belinda? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if that was ever used, but it should be. <laughs> yeah, it should. it should be. All right. Our next article comes to us from thenewstack.io. This week in programming, the Elasticsearch saga continues. And I'll be honest, I've been so caught up with the Bachelorette sagas uh, <laughs> that I didn't know there was an Elasticsearch saga. Um, so, Don, can you bring us up to see sure. on, on what's going on in that <laughs> world? Daniel, have you followed any of this at all? Uh, I, you and I were talking a little bit about okay. this, but a very interesting conversation, but no, I haven't followed it. This is like prime drama. It's <laughs> been going on for about a year now. It's amazing. Uh, what we're doing is it, we've got an opportunity here to watch an organization self-destruct. It's oh, really impressive. <laughs> that's always fun. Uh, these guys have basically shot themselves in the... Well, they shot themselves in the foot. Yeah. And then here we are months later and they've now, now shot turning the gun toward their head. Or, well, <laughs> at least the other foot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. They've reloaded. Yeah. So yeah. I don't remember if we covered it originally, but basically Elasticsearch is one of the most well-known uh Big data reporting type solutions. If you have a massive amount of data, Elasticsearch does a amazing job of being able to search through it and retrieve information and get it uh, get it to you quickly and and just support huge amounts of information. Well, Amazon, uh, as they tend to do, when they see an open source product that's being successful and adopted, they usually take it and package it up into an AWS service. So then instead of you having to deal with it, you just go to AWS and say, yeah, I want an Elasticsearch stack and it deploys it. Because Elasticsearch is a little complex to deploy. You need at least four servers a standard deployment has like eight servers because you need caching servers and front end and the database servers and all these different things that go together and a load balancer. So that's where Amazon packages it all together. Well, last year, the Elastic team said, well, wait, Amazon is making money off of our open source product and that's not cool. So they decided to change their license. They were under the uh, Apache or MIT license, I don't know, one of the licenses. And so they modified their license to say, yeah, our software is free. Anybody can run it. It's open source unless you're a cloud services provider. Like they basically put a clause in there that said Amazon can't use our product, right? Which kind of goes against the idea of open source. They wanted it to be open to everybody except this one group, which is <laughs> kind of a no-no. Um, well, Amazon Listen, just don't said- Don't point out those contradictions. Yeah, on, that's crazy talk. Yeah. So Amazon said, well, that's fine. All right. Well, we'll just take the last version that was under the old license and we'll support it ourselves. So as you release your updates, we'll take our fork and we'll update that. So they created Open Search. That's Amazon's alternative to Elasticsearch. Well, a couple of months go by and Elastic says, well, great. You know, Amazon's still doing this. They're still making money. What should we do? And instead of doing the same thing and just recognizing they made a mistake, uh, instead they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to modify all of our clients 
and modify our open source server to not allow connections from unauthorized clients. In other words, to block connections from open search. And so now they've got this open source product that is quickly closing itself off. Now they've got this product validation that happens whenever you connect. This sounds like what Microsoft would do, right? Is is my is Windows licensed? Have you, <laughs> yeah. So so that's what they're putting into this open source product. And so Amazon looked at it and said, okay, well, we'll release our own set of clients that are open that don't care about what you're. You, they'll connect to Elasticsearch and they'll connect to open source. So they just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Well, oddly enough, what it's doing. I, I know I've kind of made fun of Amazon lately because, you know, Jeff Bezos went to space and is basically Dr. Evil. Uh, but uh, but it's turning Amazon into the good guy. Like, they're the good right, guy. They, right. Open search they're is fighting now, to give people quality products at an affordable price. And open search is more open than Elasticsearch. And so the company is just circling the drain and they, they need to back off of this. But if you haven't followed it, definitely check it out. It's a great example of people just self-destructing. Now, it does seem to me that at this point, Amazon and Elasticsearch almost have some sort of weird symbiosis going on because Amazon kind of relies on the fact that Elasticsearch is still creating and updating their product so that they can fork that and add that sure. functionality. So if they die, are they just going to take over and become their well, own? You know, like what would they do if they weren't around to give them cool code to put in? So Elasticsearch, it's an open source product. Yeah. They make money on donations mostly. How many active developers do you think they have? 6,000. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's probably measured in the tens or hundreds, yeah. right? So Amazon, I think they can afford that. Yeah. So, you know, they could easily, as a commercial entity, fund but, that development. You know, it's it's not so much about the ability for someone to write code. It's the, right, the... The mind behind the it. vision, it's the idea, right? The, yeah. the cool ideas that come out of the heads of those engineers as a group or as an entity. That's what they would lose out on. Again, they, they would come up with their own cool stuff, but yeah. it wouldn't be that. And maybe that's the secret sauce that they can't reproduce. Well, that's I know what, that, that was my idea or my thought. If I if I needed a Elasticsearch like solution right now, yeah. I would not deploy Elasticsearch until they sorted through all oh, of yeah. this mess. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I would use open. I, honestly, I'd use Gravwell, right? Uh, you, you remember Corey? We've interviewed him oh, a few yeah, times, yeah. Uh, which is a very similar product, except run by sane people. So, <laughs> so you know, there are other solutions out there, but it, it's yeah. just neat to see some high drama here in our Silicon Valley type um, world. They're like. Caddy high school girls going. They really are. Yeah. I think Daniel said it best when he said, fork that. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I feel about it. All right. Well, our next segment is actually uh, something special we've been uh, looking forward to doing. It is listener mail. There it is. Daniel's got to push a button now. I thought the next one was different. (laughs) You've got mail. See it. All right, so this one actually was sent over to us by Rahul V. Uh, so Rahul, since we are using your story here, we are going to send you a link to get a free Technado shirt. So thank you. And if you have uh, stories you want us to cover, definitely send those in over at technado.com and uh, and you can get a shirt too if we if we talk about your story. And so this story in particular is from Reuters.com. Uh, Zoom reaches an $85 million settlement over user privacy and Zoom bombing. So uh, how much of that, Don, do you think went to that one court 
down in Tampa <laughs> where uh, where they were zoom bombed with porn. So I actually know the answer to that, and the oh. answer is zero dollars. Uh, oh no! So this uh, this headline's been bandied about a few times, and it's kind of been misrepresented. So this was a California based settlement, so it only applied to people in California. Not anywhere else. So that court, uh, I believe, what state were they in? It was somewhere. They, on it was East in Coast. Florida. It, it was, was the Florida. guy okay. that uh, that hacked Twitter. So Twitter's based in California. So maybe we could make a yeah. a, a case. Also, do the courts like accept as a reality linear time? Because or is it like multi space, multi? I don't know. Maybe it's like the wormhole yeah, aliens. That's right. Yeah. I could anachronistically be in California <laughs> at the time of this, so I can get me some money. Well, there we go. Uh, <laughs> My data's there. Yeah. So what happened here is when the pandemic hit, Zoom exploded, right? Everybody began using Zoom. They were the company that really was like the shining knight of the pandemic. Uh, but that quickly revealed some weaknesses that it had, and they rapidly worked to correct those. Uh, Zoom bombing was one of those. Zoom bombing was very common in the early days because people would create these non-password protected uh, conference rooms and strangers would join. Now, in my opinion, that really wasn't Zoom's fault. It's kind of up to us. If you're going to create a public room, people are going to join. That's how the internet works. So, uh, you know, we don't arrest the people that send us spam email. We should, yeah, but we don't. To say. Um, <laughs> and so that's how it is with Zoom. Well, they also had a few other things that happened, and this is being portrayed in the movie as, or in the movie, in the, <laughs> there'll be a movie one that is day. Great. But this is being portrayed in the news as being all about Zoom bombing and weak security. But if you read through the settlement, that's actually not what it is at all. Uh, so they did not admit guilt. They say they did everything right. Hold on, this is clickbait. Uh, kind of, yeah. Oh, uh, or, or confusion, I Got think, is probably more it than clickbait. But uh, so they they did not admit guilt. And there's certain things like the Zoom bombing. They actually can't be held liable for that. There's protections hmm. for media platforms like theirs where they can't uh, be sued for that. They have kind of a, a sort of immunity around it. What this really boils down to is in the early days is people were signing up for accounts that Zoom was actually sharing that data with Facebook, Google, and LinkedIn as part of their ability to, to basically post meetings to those other platforms. They were sharing user data and it wasn't in their privacy policy. So this really boils down to a privacy violation. And that's why the settlement is so small at $85 million. I know that's a lot of money. I'll take $85 million but, a day of the week, Don. Uh, I think the, the attorney bill alone was like over $20 million, And most people are going to end up getting like a $15 credit if you're a California citizen because they have the uh, this more stringent privacy policy. So this is a weird one. Zoom, in my opinion, Zoom didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, they have basically worked to correct a lot of their security settings. They do have issues. They do still have a lot of control from China and other things that we can kind of pick on. But this settlement is not the one. Well, I wanted some of that money. <laughs> not going to happen. Well, yeah, in my opinion, Zoom. Yeah, you'll get a one dollar coupon for yeah. Burger King or something. Does it count if I set up like a a room that is kind of designed as a honeypot to bring people into Zoom bomb me so I can get me that money? Does that work? You could try, but yeah, I don't think that's gonna work. Dang. You VPN to California. Yeah. Man, yeah. I'm dumb. Gears are turning. I mean, in my in my opinion though, we, you know, we we owe Zoom for the best story of last year with with that. Oh, uh, photo or zoom yeah, court, yeah, so. that was, yeah. Uh, that was a good one. Just have Don <laughs> the have fact that it was in court, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you've got hackers. There's a on stenographer, trial, and then yes, just going. There's a stenographer down. going. Am I supposed to write down like the noise? <laughs> what the guy in the porno <laughs> yeah. saying? Because I am. So I just 
Yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> That's where that little sensor comes in. It's yeah, like, yeah, it that was a step too far, Daniel. Don't, don't. I'm glad the filter here. finally worked for Daniel. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, shift over to our next story, which is of the Deja News variety. Deja News. All right, this one comes to us from Slashdot.org. Google drops Bluetooth Titan security keys in favor of NFC versions. And so this is kind of that that uh, alternative to YubiKey, right, that Google was, right. was making themselves. But, uh, I mean, YubiKey went over to NFC a, a while ago. They so did, now yeah. they're following suit. So way back in 2018, we announced that Google was, we broke the news. I think it was an exclusive that we had, if I remember right, (laughs) Uh, that that Google had launched their Titan Key multi-factor authentication token that you could use. And they released two models. They released a USB model and a Bluetooth model. And that was kind of breaking news at the time because YubiKey, who I I use YubiKeys every single day, uh, they had a USB model and an NFC YubiKey has never released a Bluetooth model. And uh, in interviews, the founder of YubiKey has said, or YubiCo, has said a few times that they don't do Bluetooth because there's some security concerns with it, that it is not as strong as other methods, so they choose not to do it. So it was kind of impressive that, that Google was stepping into it, either ignoring those security weaknesses or that they found some way to correct it. And I... I hypothesized that they were just ignoring the security issue. Well, fast forward to today, three years later, Google is discontinuing the Bluetooth authenticator. Uh, They have had some some problems with it. They have had to, in some cases, even mail people replacements to fix the problems with it. Bluetooth is just not suitable for this type of authentication. And what they're saying in their press release, so it's been uh, media-ified, is that, well, now so many phones have NFC that we just don't see the need to keep Bluetooth and so discontinuing it. But I, I think it's another, just another sign that Bluetooth was not suitable for this application. Uh, I'm just seeing the meme of the the guy who's standing on the podium with the bottle of champagne, flipping the double birds, biting his in that's Google, and then like, oh yeah, we we made a mistake. It makes me think <laughs> of Apple, right? Where like Apple for for years and years they'll tell you you do not need a touch screen on a laptop, and then. <laughs> One year, they're going to come out and say, here's our new MacBooks with touchscreens. We waited until the technology was right. We didn't want to do touchscreens like everybody else. We wanted to do touchscreens right. They're very uh, authoritarian in that way, right? Like, we have done it correctly. Everybody else is imperfect. And then they tack some dumb things on it. Like, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, this is the best touchscreen you've ever used on an Apple yes. device. And if, you, and, <laughs> and if you touch it this way, just at the bottom right-hand corner and the right pixel, it'll delete your hard drive. I don't know why we put that in there, but it's the right thing. <laughs> that's right. You want that. Yeah. So I kind of feel that's what's happening here with Google is, hey, you've got NFC. That's better. We'll get rid of this other thing. But I, I think that there's more to it behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, NFC is kind of the future, right? Uh, I would say. it's a, it's a group. I don't think it is. Really? <laughs> no. I, it, well, I've seen it more and more, I guess, is what I'm saying is that's, yeah, that's all right, my so there's experience. That, yeah. I, I got a Pixel phone forever ago that was when they first started offering and NFC. And I, well, it depends on which Pixel it was. There's some that I <laughs> like, but most of them no. Uh, but it just really wasn't adopted. I couldn't use NFC many places, but right. it is in a lot of places now. I do use it for payment stuff. Right. That's that's what I meant. Like yeah. I see it a lot for that. Yeah. And, and uh, Apple was late to that game too. 
and and then kind of finally App- added the Apple's the late to anything that they said that they didn't do. Yeah, right? create. <laughs> like if you did, if they didn't do it, and it's then it's wrong. Yeah, and you should stop doing that. Yeah, done your uh, your. PR statement um, from Apple kind of reminds me of that old SNL sketch where it was like a law office that were like, we waited to get on the internet. We wanted to make sure this was a real thing. And so now our domain is the only domain that was left. And uh, I had to look it up to remember it's Um, (laughs) clownpenis.fart. But... it's same, the only same kind of domain thing. that's left. That's yeah, and it's, it's like this very staunch law office, and they they use that as their domain because nice. that was the last one left. Oh, what are you gonna do? You gotta, you gotta be on yeah. the web. Yeah, you, dot fart domain. How do we not have? Yeah, are dot, dot fart farts available? Is that? I don't, I don't think they are. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was an SNL. What con- <laughs> yeah, what country code is that? I How do we get that in the, the Aaron direct? You're like, what are we going to do? <laughs> There's yeah. probably a Fart's dot Alania. RT and then you could work the rest of it out. <gasps> yeah. So yes. fa dot RT. Yeah. I, now I have uh, my marching orders for the rest of the week. Yes, I will get do. on that. All right. Well, we've got uh, we've got one more fun one that we want to get to, uh, which is actually in our that makes no sense segment. Is there a. There is. Yeah, the Daniel. One? Yeah, I don't one see any, I just see dough. <laughs> that ain't. There we go. That works. <laughs> I made a really fun, makes no sense intro. Where is that? It's Peter's, on the page. When you find it, we'll play it, it in the middle of the segment. It wasn't highlighted. Peter's not mad. He's just disappointed. Okay, here you go. <laughs> Hold on. No. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. What you talking about, Willis? There we go. Yeah, you had to get him in there. All right. This one is uh, from NBCnews.com. Turn off, turn on. Simple step can thwart top phone hackers. But that, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I I almost went through, you know, the, the multiple stages of grief. I, I kind of went through that with this article because it was fed to me different ways. And taken at its surface level, the headline of turning off your phone and turning it back on will thwart top hackers is basically bullshit, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that that's my, my first imp- impression on it. Uh, but Daniel and I have kind of talked about it a few times and we've learned more about what was happening. And we finally dug in and got uh, Daniel showed me the original statement because this came from none other than the NSA. And the original statement is a little bit different. Daniel, you want to kind of summarize it? Yeah. I mean, so it was kind of funny because I saw this article. I, was, I told Don because this was something we were kind of discussing because Peter had been asked about this, sure. if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, so, as a local reporter had actually asked us, like, hey, have you heard this? Uh, can we do a story about it? And we're like, there's no way that that's a real thing. Right. And that sure was first. Well, and then, of course, we were standing here and I thought, well, there is like fileless malware that gets loaded into memory, uses exploits. It never writes anything to disk. And since it's in memory, if you restart your phone, that malware would disappear uh, as soon as that happened. So in that sense, it was right. So, uh, And as we looked at this article, it, it does kind of make off like, oh, just restart your phone. But when you drill down back to the NSA and what they're recommending, it's part of an ecosphere of security that they've built around mobile devices, which is a, you know, a step, a layered defense as normal security is done to help you secure your phone. And basically saying once a week, just restart your phone. Most people don't do that. Therefore, if any kind of malware Fileless malware is in your memory, it'll get cleared out, and then they would have to reattack the phone. And that might not be feasible at that point. So that can be helpful. 
Yeah, and if you if you look at the headline, it says this can thwart the top hackers, which is absolutely not true. <laughs> but if you go to the actual NSA statement, he says, uh, you know, it, it's not going to solve everything. But yeah. his quote is, it can make even the most sophisticated hackers work harder to maintain access and steal data from a phone. Doesn't mean you're going to thwart them well, at all. That's, that's his idea. Maybe that's how they're interpreting the word thwart is yeah. by making things more difficult for them. So the, the example I gave was imagine somebody picks the lock on the front door to your house and breaks in and steals a bunch of stuff. And so you walk up and you say, oh, somebody picked the lock on my door. Let me close the door and relock it. <laughs> Problem solved. Well, no, right? Yeah. Because first off, they've already stolen your stuff. Yeah. So there's that, right? So the stuff is gone. Secondly, they picked the lock once. They can pick it again. So yeah, they might be annoyed. Like, oh, I just picked this last week. But they can still do it because they've got the same skills. When you reboot your phone, yes, you might have kicked off fileless malware. But if there was fileless mal malware already on your phone, they've already gotten stuff. So Dude. that ship has sailed. And then you reboot your phone. You haven't fixed whatever it was they took advantage to get in. So if they exploited the underlying operating system somehow or a flaw in Bluetooth or, or whatever, then it'll just get recompromised again. But Daniel, you had a good point about like some of the methods of how they compromise that aren't as easy to repeat. Oh, yes, absolutely. Especially with more sophisticated attacks. I mean, they're sophisticated. They're very difficult to pull off. They have even timing factors can come into play. Like it has to be a perfect storm of things that they are uh, actively trying to set you up for. And it's e it's easier to do it once, right? Because, but once you start to see things happening over again, kind of going back to your analogy about the door. Okay. I relocked my door. Great. But those attackers want back in. It's not just a one and done a lot right. of times. So coming back and repicking the door exposes them more. And the... Uh, active, you might actually detect that they were there. And therefore, so it, there is some, some give and take to that as far as going, even if they're just, if you were just doing that, uh, it's more likely that they would be detected that there's happening. You'll start to see patterns. Why do I keep get forwarded onto this specific website? Yeah. I don't even know what this is. You know, the, your fish that told me I needed to do an update is now starting to look suspicious because you're telling me to do this every week. Yep. And so, you know, you might fall for that phishing attempt once. Right. But then if you have to fall for it a second time for the attacker to get back in, then effectively you have thwarted them by yep. rebooting your phone. But it doesn't change the fact that you are already infected. And even this guy, you know, at the NSA, if he's rebooting his phone every week, he's acting under the assumption that his phone has been compromised every week, which as you should. Kind of highlights a bigger problem, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, this <laughs> is the idea behind security and threat hunting, right? Is you are assuming you have been breached because most breaches last nine months before detection. Yeah. Right. So you have to kind of go with the mindset of active threat hunting, thinking there's going to be some indicator of compromise in here. I just got to find it. And if I'm actively looking for it or actively doing things to thwart it, thwart it, then, you know, I'm doing something proactive instead of reactive. Well, I might not put a lot of of uh, uh, stock, yeah, yeah. In, in all this, but I, I will say, you know, we just made fun of Apple, so now I'm going to say something nice about Apple. <laughs> uh, they have been rapid firing updates out this year, mm. and I think my phone has been rebooting every week because it seems like nice. there's a new iOS update every week. I mean, how how difficult would it be? I get maybe on Android, it's probably pretty much easier. I don't, I don't know about iPhones because I hate them. Um, but to set like a schedule to say rebuild my home every night, I'm asleep. Yeah. Right? You could do that like back in the back in the old days when yeah. you could root your phone and it wasn't madness. Mm -hmm. You could you could use um, 
task schedule or whatever yeah, to yeah, go yeah. in and reboot those. Uh, I don't think you can do it anymore. I wonder. I'm, I'm, I'm st- now you got my wheels turning, Don. I, I, I challenge accepted. I guess you just let the battery run down. <laughs> there you go. Just make like there, make an app that just uses like all the power. <laughs> it just turns down every night. All right, so I can I can fix this headline uh, by just removing two words. Turn off. Simple step can thwart top phone hackers. <laughs> yeah. Now that is a true statement. Yeah, reinfection real difficult when that phone ain't yeah. on. That one's set. We fixed Absolutely. it. They just left in the the wrong words there. That's right. There we go. Stop using your stupid phone. <laughs> All right. Want to let you know about a couple of things. Oh, I've got clown penis dot fart. Oh, hold on. Uh, there we go. <laughs> He's working on it. I was like, nope, that's the wrong. That's the wrong link. I don't want to go to that one, uh, which doesn't actually work. Uh, so I want to let you know about a couple of things coming up over at IT Pro TV. First of all, we've got another webinar coming very soon. Uh, is your security battle tested? Proving your security works the way you want it to. That's Thursday, August 19th. Uh, and Ben Fink from OnDefend, uh, our partners there, are uh, is going to be involved in that one. Uh, so head over to itpro.tv slash webinars and you can register for that. Uh, also, we've got the Getting Started in IT free weekend happening this weekend, August 14th and 15th. Uh, that's got courses like CompTIA IT Fundamentals, A+, uh, Linux Essentials, Microsoft 365 Fundamentals, uh, which is MS900, uh, hands-on PC build, uh, Cisco CCT routing and switching, and Apple certified support professional uh, Mac OS 11 are all free uh, this weekend to free members at IT Pro TV. So just head over there and uh, create a new account and you'll have access to that whole weekend. Uh, uh, it make no sense. It make no sense. It make no sense. Why would we do this? It don't make no sense. I was going to get mad at you. You're... You're playing it's music during the promos. That's disappointing. Uh, all right. And also head over to uh, technado.com and you can uh, send us some listener mail and get yourself a shirt uh, as well that way. And you can also click on the big orange button that says sponsored by IT Pro TV. And you can get a 30% off coupon code for the lifetime of your IT Pro TV personal membership. And you can request a team trial and check that out as well. So uh, head over there to Technado dot com uh as always i'm drunk with power i just want to push all these buttons <laughs> go ahead now, now's your, your moment yeah let's see what we got on this thing here going going for blind oh jeez. all right yeah, there nice. that works for the promo it does <laughs> yeah yeah we we've just made our money that's it by, by doing that all right. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, I'm I'm out here in Las Vegas, so I've got to get back to the pool. I mean, uh, the, the trade show yeah. booth conference. Working hard, which is not by the pool at all. Just but, remember, uh, don't uh, you know the, the pandemic is still going on. Don't lick any of the buttons on the slot machines. Yeah, it's gonna be uh, funny when Peter comes back and he's sunburnt, and you're like, "How'd you get a sunburn inside of a conference?" Well, in his defense, I think oh. if he goes outside for more than five minutes, he true. gets sunburned. Right. Yeah. He's not. Yeah, I'm facing the window the right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting sunburned. It's 105. It's 105 degrees. It, it, in in our defense, it's been pretty hot here as well. Yeah. Yeah. But his is a it's dry a, heat. It is a dry heat. It's a dry heat. heat. <laughs> they say. It, it's a dry heat like sticking your head in an oven. Yeah. You know what I like when you're standing next to a car and that warm air is bubbling out from underneath it and you're just like, hmm. That feels good. Nice. All right, everybody. Well, that's a wrap for Technado with with me, Don yeah. Fazette, this week. We're looking forward to next week when Peter will be back from Las Vegas and we'll be all right back here in our happy right. studio. So be sure to tune back in. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to submit some listener mail. If you have a news article you want us to cover, you could get a Technado t-shirt 
definitely do that. Yes. Help us pick our articles. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.